Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Alive. All right, well, last week, if you were with us, we studied Mark chapter 15, verses 1 uh, through 39. It was all about the horrible and the brutal suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I have a question for you. How many of you are glad there's a chapter 16, right? Man, I am so happy there's a chapter 16. If the story would have ended in chapter 15, then we could not call this the gospel of Mark. The word gospel simply means good news. And any story that ends with a man dead hanging on a cross, that's not good news. But if the story ends with that man coming back to life, if the story ends with that man crushing the head of the serpent and defeating sin, death, and hell, now we've got some good news to share. And have you noticed that everybody that comes up on this uh, platform that we're kind of excited? Have you noticed that? You know why? And by the way, it's genuine. Before God, I'm being genuine with the passion that I have because here, here's the thing. Later on today, some of you will go home, you'll watch a football game, you get all excited, you'll throw popcorn, you'll jump up and down, maybe. If you can get passionate about a football, I can get passionate about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And by the way, what's more important? And so we got some good news to share and we should be passionate. We should be happy, we should be joyful. And so before we get to the resurrection in chapter 16, we gotta talk about his burial at the end of chapter 15. And so right now, if you're looking down either on your smartphone or your Bible, if you're looking at Mark 15, verse 40, I want you to say amen. amen. Okay, and so if you're new to Calvary, this is what we do, we go verse by verse. And so today, Lord willing, we'll go through chapter 16, verse eight. Next week, final message in the gospel of Mark, and then we kick off the book of Acts. All right, so chapter 15, verse 40, there were also women. Everybody say women. women. Thank God for the women. There were also women looking on from a distance. You say looking on at what? The, the crucifixion of Jesus. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger in, of Joseph, and Salome. So Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Salome, verse 41, when he, Jesus, was in Galilee, they, the women, followed him, and what's the next three words? You see that? The women ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so already in our Bible study, point number one, if you're taking notes, the women in Jesus' life were three things. They were courageous, they were faithful, and they were gracious. Now, it's very important when you study the Bible, the Gospels, that every once in a while you look around and you see Matthew, you see Mark, you see Luke, you see John, you put it all together. It's kind of like if four people saw an accident out on the road and there's different views, and so that's how it is. And so when you read Matthew with Mark, you find out that there were many women who not only followed Jesus from, uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, but many women were there 
and saw his crucifixion and saw his death. Okay, so how do we know the women were courageous? Because of that. They were at Golgotha. They were at Calvary. They were at the place of the skull, that vicious and violent and, and, and often volatile place where they executed criminals. And so these ladies at any moment could have been identified with Jesus. They could have been persecuted. They could have been arrested, right? As people are hurling insults at Jesus, they could have said, who are you? What are you doing? You know, and, and they could have um, been persecuted, but they held their ground until Jesus breathed his last. Thank God for the women. They were courageous and they were faithful. So how do you know they were faithful? Well, here's how. Because when the men in Jesus' life ran away, it was the women who stood with him at Calvary. If you're new to the Bible, you need to know that all of Jesus' men, all the disciples who were men, ran away. Even John, initially. But thank God we know that John came back and he... Uh, Receive the responsibility to take care of Jesus' mother, but all the men fled, but the women stayed their ground. So I wonder, as Jesus was on the cross, as he was experiencing excruciating pain, as he was pushing himself up, trying to breathe, if every once in a while he looked over at his female friends, and I wonder if he got encouraged by the fact that they were standing with him and no doubt praying for him. And so I'm sure their presence made him glad because it's always good to have somebody with you when you're going through a difficult time. Now here's what you need to know. There's people in your life who are going through a difficult time. And what you need to do, because often people who are going through a hard time, they put a wall up, they kind of seem like they, they're antisocial, they don't want to be, uh, you know, anybody to you know, be around them. But what you need to do if you're a faithful friend is push through that wall gently and send them a text, give them a call, send them a private Facebook message, whatever it is, take them out to lunch, and let them know that you're gonna stand with them through their difficulty. It'll mean the world to them. If you'll do what the women did for Jesus, if you'll do that for someone who's having a difficult time. They were courageous, they were faithful, and third thing there is they were gracious. Look at uh, verse 41 again. It says in verse 41, when he, Jesus, was in Galilee, they, the women, followed him and ministered to him. All right, so for the better part of three years, as Jesus was executing his ministry up in Galilee, he didn't just have his 12 apostles, he had many women. And they followed them around from village to village and town to town. And they ministered to Jesus and the apostles. How did they minister? I'm sure they went to the market. I'm sure they cooked the meals. I'm sure that they ran errands. Okay, and so thank God for the women. Look at what Luke has to say about the women. In context of Luke 8, 3, he says that they used their own resources. That's their financial resources, ladies and gentlemen. They used their own resources to help Jesus and his disciples. And so what do these ladies do? They not only went to synagogue and sat on Saturday and heard a rabbi teach the Bible. No, they, got, uh, they did more than that. They got active in their faith. They said, Jesus is the Messiah. We see his miracles. We believe in him. And they got up 
out of the pew and they followed him around. And what did they do? They gave their time, they gave their talent, they gave their treasure in order to support the Lord's ministry. And so before I go on, I've got to say from the bottom of my heart, from your pastor to you, you know who you are. If you're serving behind the scenes, if you're giving financially to this local church, I wanna say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. And as you hear every weekend on the video announcements, we could not be the church without you. And so can we put our hands together and thank those who are serving and those who are giving and not just sitting. So, so very, very important. I have a Calvary group. We meet twice a month with some guys who are called to ministry and uh, we were talking about what if, what if I had to do everything? You know, what if I had to drive the shuttle? And by the way, it's good if you can every once in a while drive, uh, park across the street and take the shuttle over, helps uh, make parking spaces for visitors. But what if I had to drive the shuttle and then I had, what if I had to park cars and then I had to run over to the front door and uh, greet everybody and then I had to go to these doors and hand out programs and then I had to run over and pray for the services with our awesome intercessory prayer team and then I had to go back here behind the booths and I had to deal with video and sounds and I had to run over and make sure I'm the one that baptizes every single person and then run over and minister to your kids and share you know, the gospel and Jesus and the Bible on the, on the level for children with your children in our kids ministry and then I had to run over here and, and grab a guitar and sing. That's when everybody leaves, right? If I'm the worship leader, this church is two people, me and Stacy, my wife, that's it, right? So thank God for all these people. What if I'm the one who's gotta come, you know, and, 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 and teach the, the students during the week and teach the young adults during the week and, and you know, go over to the office on Midway and stuff all the bulletins and I, I'm just sharing just a fraction of what hundreds of ministry partners do here in this church. They don't just sit. They actually serve and they actually support. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so happy for that. Uh, I didn't say this in any, any other service, but it's kind of it's funny. My wife and I were having a conversation um, with a certain ministry partner and the ministry partner was talking about how they had to change a diaper and how the diaper exploded all over her. And, and, and I, what I said to this person was, you know what? People think that in the judgment seat of Christ, when we get to heaven and we get our rewards, that pastors you know, are the ones who are gonna have the big mansion and the big estate. Listen, compared to these people that are changing diapers this morning, our, my place is gonna be a little piddly and they're gonna have the estate, you know, in heaven someday. And so if I haven't said it enough, I hope you hear my heart. Thanks so much for your service and your, your support here at Calvary. And uh, who knows what God's gonna do in 2019 when we all pitch together. All right, so Mark, what does Mark's gospel do here? Mark gives us the name of three specific women. There were many. Three specific women who were at Calvary. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and a lady named Salome. All right, so Mary Magdalene was from the town of Magdala. That's why her name is Mary Magdalene, which was a town, a village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Bible says that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Can you imagine right now having seven demons living inside of you? And Jesus delivered her. 
the finger of God, probably the little nail of the pinky finger. Jesus is so much greater than these imps. And he delivers her from seven demons and she's forever grateful. I know that her service and her support is born out of a heart of gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. You delivered me. I'm serving you till the day I die. And that's Mary Magdalene. The other Mary uh, was the mother of James the Less or James the Younger, who was one of the uh, 12 apostles. We don't know a lot about her, but we do some, know some more about Salome. Salome, who Mark lists as one of the women who were at Calvary, she was the wife of Zebedee. And Zebedee and Salome, they had a couple boys. Their names were James and John, right? Sons of thunder. Um, James, the bold, faithful apostle, who, by the way, is martyred, you'll see it when we get to Acts chapter 12. And then John, the beloved disciple who writes the Gospel of John, writes the three little letters at the end of your New Testament and writes the book of Revelation. And so along with Peter, Peter, James, John, they're the inner three. They get to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus light up the side of the mountain as he reveals his deity through his humanity. And so, man, moms that are here today, moms that are watching right now on Facebook live stream, can you imagine, you moms who have little kids, can you imagine if you were raising James and John? And so Salome, she had no idea when these boys were in their diapers running around the house and, and fighting and going with their daddy Zebedee to the Sea of Galilee to go fishing. Salome had no idea who she was raising, but I thank God that Salome was a faithful mom. I know for a fact that her faithfulness in the lives of her boys attributed to the fact of who they became later. They impacted their world. And so moms, if you're here this morning, you need to know that your number one ministry is not what you do for the church or at church. Your number one ministry is what you do at home with your kids. Absolutely. You don't know, if you got little rugrats running around your house, you don't know who that boy, who that girl's gonna grow up to be. And so don't buy into the lie of the culture that career women, they're way up here in value and importance and stay-at-home moms are down here somewhere. I guarantee you in the vision of God, it's not like that at all. And so if you're called to work, you're, you need to work. Praise God, go to work. But just know that your kids, they're more important. Way more important. And I can't wait until the Lord lets us build a Christian school so we can come along, parents, and help them, and we can get some hundreds and thousands of young disciples who can, we can send out to impact the world for Christ. Amen. These women, these women, they were courageous. What does that mean? They stood at Calvary with Jesus. They were faithful. They stayed with Jesus when the men ran away. And they were gracious. They supported Jesus out of their own financial resources. And so courage, faithfulness, graciousness, are those three things up and running in my life and in your life? That's between you and the Lord and between me and the Lord. But let's move on now. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. All right, you guys help me out. What day is before the Sabbath? Friday. 
Okay, so right now we're, we're somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m. on Friday. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, when a criminal was executed by the Romans, you need to know that they lost all rights, including their right for a proper burial. And so it was not unusual first century under the Roman Empire that when, a, uh, when the soldiers crucified a guy, that after that guy died, they just leave his body on the, on the cross to rot. They just let the body, the wild animals, predatory animals, don't chew on them for a few days, right? That was, that was usual in the Roman Empire. But Joseph of Arimathea, who Matthew's gospel tells us he was rich and he was a disciple of Jesus, this guy refuses to allow the body of the Lord to be desecrated. For all he knew, the Sanhedrin wanted to take Jesus' body down and throw it in Gehenna. And so he's not about to let any of these things happen. So he musters up his courage and he goes to Pilate. He's got to be trembling. <laughs> he's a Jew going to Pilate. And he asks permission for Jesus' body. And so Mark tells us that this took courage, no doubt because Pilate was an intimidating ruler. But it also took courage because, I don't know if you saw it, Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. He's actually part of the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us that when the Sanhedrin voted to condemn Jesus to death, you know what Joseph of Arimathea did? He said, no way. He's an innocent man. And he did not agree with their decision. He did not take part at all in their action of handing Jesus over to Pilate. And so his colleagues in the Sanhedrin are already angry at him for not voting with them against Jesus to condemn Jesus to death. And when they find out, when the Sanhedrin finds out that it was Joseph who went to Pilate and took the body of Jesus and buried the body in his own tomb, I guarantee you, it's not in the Bible, but I guarantee you they let this guy have it. He felt the full brunt of their anger because they hated Jesus. Okay, so now we go to verse 44. It says, Pilate, okay, Joseph goes to Pilate, hey, can I have the body of Jesus? Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And so since victims of crucifixion usually did not die for days, Pilate's surprised. He's already dead? What? You know, it's only been six hours. What are you talking about? He's already dead. Centurion, come here. Yes, sir. Is, is Jesus the Nazarene dead? Yes, sir. I made sure of it myself. Okay. Joseph, you can have his body. Verse 46 and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, taking Jesus down from the cross, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. We know from other gospels that this is his own tomb. 
So everybody knows where the tomb of Jesus was. Joseph of Arimathea, the rich guy, in the garden near Golgotha. Okay? That's very important that you know that. And so he put him in a tomb and he, that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, he had to do this fast. The reason he had to do it fast is because we just were told by Mark that it was the day of preparation. It was Friday. The day of preparation means you're preparing for the Sabbath. That means that the ladies cook twice as much food so, because they're not allowed to cook on Saturday. Saturday is the Sabbath. The Sabbath actually went from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. During that time, the Jews could not do any what? You tell me. Work. Um, in my, one of my classes for seminary, I've been reading through the Pentateuch and over 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 again, God's like, don't work on, on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. And so Joseph, he's got to act quickly. Some, sometime between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., he goes to Pilate, gets permission, goes back to Golgotha, and he's got to hurry up and get the body down, get it wrapped, get it in the, in the tomb. Why? Because when the sun goes down, he's not allowed to, what, you help me, work. And so John tells us that he takes Nicodemus, his friend, with him, and they together are getting the job done. And so concerning Jesus' burial, one of my commentators that I read during the week is a guy named Chuck Swindoll. I like what he had to say about this. And so Chuck Swindoll, if you're taking notes, you can just look at this. Um, it says, with time running out, Joseph and the others rinsed the Lord's body, anointed it with oil and spiced linens, and then wrapped it in a linen cloth, all in keeping with Jewish burial customs. They hurried. Again, why are they hurrying? The sun's going down. They hurried to move the body to a burial cave that Joseph had recently acquired for his own family. And after placing him inside, they rolled a large cylindrical stone in front of the entrance and departed. All right, so what did a first century tomb look like? Well, there is a good depiction of what a first century tomb looked like what a tomb that Jesus would have been buried in looked like. Now, do you guys see the round circular stone there? If you do, say yes. Okay, and so there, those things weighed between one and two tons, sometimes more than two tons. They were really big, they were really heavy. They were designed to keep predatory animals out from going in and desecrating these bodies. The question is, how could Joseph and Nicodemus Move such a huge uh, stone in order to close the tomb? And the answer is that right in front of the entrance, they carved out, in all these tombs, they would carve out a trench or a groove. And so the big stone, you just had to get it with a lever far enough so that gravity would take its course and it would plop down into the trench thus securing the tomb. And so the problem was not closing the tomb. The problem was opening the tomb once the stone was in place. So in order to open the tomb, you would need several guys pushing on that lever in order to hoist the stone up out of the groove and roll it away. And so a rich man, everybody say a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea. He buries the body of Jesus in his own tomb, thus fulfilling 
more Old Testament prophecy. So look at the amazing Isaiah 53. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in whose tomb? That was written over 700 years before Christ. He ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. More prophecy proving that Jesus is the Christ. You can't explain this stuff away. Hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in our New Testament. Now we're in verse 47. It says that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And so the same ladies that saw Jesus die on the cross now saw him buried in the tomb of Joseph. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, working fast, they, uh, what they did is they took the linen strips, um, they anointed them with spices, perhaps they dipped them in perfume, right? And they wrapped the body of Jesus, and then they put him in uh, Joseph's tomb, it says the women were watching all of this. The sun's going down, they're going fast. And the women are no doubt thinking, you know, they're working too fast. They're not doing a great job. We need to come back and do the job fully. We're women, we can do the job right, whatever they were thinking, right? And so they decided to return after the Sabbath to prepare the body fully for burial. And now we finally get to the last chapter of Mark, can you believe we've been here a year? We're there. Chapter 16, verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go or might go and anoint him. And very early on, which day of the week? First day, Sunday. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And so early on Sunday morning, the women brought more spices to anoint the body of Jesus, you know, somehow to try to help neutralize the stench that would occur. And little did they know, there would be no need for spices on this day. Verse three, and they were saying to one another, well, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw, shocker, the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. All right, so who rolled back the stone? Mark doesn't tell us. This is why you gotta read all the gospel accounts. Remember the four people watching the wreck? Different, not, not contradictory, but just seeing it the way they saw it. And it all fills in the blanks. And so Matthew actually fills in the blanks for us and so I gotta tell you the backstory about, of what Matthew shares with us. So when the Sanhedrin finds out that one of their own went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and buried that body in his own tomb, the Sanhedrin, they're mad. They go to Pilate and they say, hey, we're afraid that his disciples are gonna go and try to steal the body at night. And so Pilate, we're requesting that you send Roman soldiers down to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb in the garden near Golgotha. Everybody knew where the tomb was. We're requesting that you send Roman soldiers to guard the site because if they steal that body and they say that he's risen, the first deception that Jesus is the Messiah, that's gonna be not as bad as the second deception that he's risen from the grave. 
Pilate says, go take the soldiers. The soldiers go. We don't know how many, but they're there. They're guarding the tomb. How many of you guys served in one of our uh, branches of the military? Raise your hand, please. Can we thank these men and women for their service? Thank you, I'll join you. How many of you were ever caught sleeping when it was your uh, time to guard something? You know, what did your superior officer do to you or your sergeant do to you? I don't know, I, don't wanna, I, I can't even imagine. But if you're a Roman soldier, and you know, they guarded Saturday night the tomb in shifts, so some slept, some stayed awake. If they were found sleeping when it was their turn to guard whatever they were guarding, they could be executed. Okay, this is the Roman Empire. This is the ruthless Roman Empire. And so what happens? Matthew fills in the blanks. Look at this, I love this. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel. Everybody say angel. angel. There's the answer right there. Who rolled away the stone? Bam, Matthew tells us. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And for fear of him, the guards, those Roman soldiers, they trembled, these big bad dudes, they trembled and became like dead men. By the way, this always happens when an angel shows up in the Bible. People freak out. If an angel revealed himself in this service right now, we'd all freak out, I'm telling you. As I've said a hundred times, they're not the little plump angels on the pictures in your bathroom. These are big, bad, awesome, holy beings. And so why did the angel roll back the stone? Was it in order to let Jesus out? You know, was Jesus in the tomb? I'm alive, let me out. Angel's like, okay, is that why? No, he's the Lord Christ. <laughs> he's risen. We find out later that in his resurrected, glorified body, he walks through walls, he flies, he eats, he does whatever he wants to do. He doesn't need a help from one of the angels that he created to let him out of a tomb. The angel did not roll back the stone to let Jesus out. The angel rolled back the stone so fallen, doubting people like you and me can look in and see the tomb is empty and Jesus has risen from the dead. That's why the angel rolled it back. And so look at verse five now. The women, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has Risen. Everybody say those three words. Go ahead. He has risen. If you really believe it, say it louder. He has risen. He's not here. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. This is the central truth of our faith. Right here. And so the angel gave the women the greatest news ever. Jesus is alive. But how many of you know that even when you're given the evidence, if you harden your hearts, you will not believe? 
And that's exactly what happened. The guards, after they get up from their days, some of them run into town and they tell the chief priests. Matthews tells us the story. He's filling in the blanks. They tell the chief priests everything that happened. The angel, the stone, he's gone. Pilate's gonna kill us, right? And so what did the Sanhedrin do? You would think these guys would fall on their faces before Yahweh God and say, sorry, we rejected your son. Is that what they did? No, they convened together. They made a decision and they paid off the guards. Hey, tell everybody the disciples came while you were sleeping and stole the body. Pilate's gonna kill us. Don't worry, we have your back. We'll take care of Pilate. And that story was spread among the Jewish community. This is Matthew chapter 28. That story that the disciples came and stole the body was spread throughout the Jewish community in the first century and beyond. And so let's just take a breather here for a second and address a very real issue in our culture today. And that is doubts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, some people say, Pastor, no, no disrespect, but I have a hard time. I have a hard time believing that a dead man got up and walked out of a tomb. Well, here's what I have a hard time believing. I have a hard time believing the Sanhedrin's story that the disciples stole the body while the Roman soldiers were sleeping? Are we really to believe that the disciples who scared to death ran away when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? Boom, where, are where are they? Where'd you go, guys? Gone, ran away. They didn't want to be killed. Are we really to believe that those disciples who ran away at the Garden of Gethsemane suddenly mustered up their courage and stole the body of Jesus in front of sleeping, trained to kill Roman soldiers? Are we really to believe that they tiptoed past the sleeping guards and that several of them pushing down on the lever to try to get the stone out of its groove without making any noise, without waking anybody up? Listen, law enforcement today, they pull you over, they put, tell you, put your hands behind your back, and they treat you 99.9% .9 of the time civilly. Listen, we're talking about in the first century, Roman Empire, you're walking past a sleeping guard, they get up, what are you doing? They don't ask questions, they kill you. Are we really to believe that they tiptoed past these train killers, pushed the stone away without making any noise at all, grabbed the body and then ran away. Ladies and gentlemen, if the disciples didn't have the courage to stand for Christ when he was alive, why would they stand for him now when he's dead? It doesn't make any sense. You have a hard time believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I have a hard time believing the story of the Sanhedrin, which is a lie from religious guys, which tells me religion doesn't do anything for you. It's a relationship with God through Christ. That's the truth. And so the Sanhedrin's lie has forced Christians to have to defend the resurrection. So let me give you, in time remaining, we have five minutes and 50 seconds, okay? <laughs> so I'm just gonna give you two reasons how we know Jesus is alive. There's lots more. You can go to gotquestions.org 
type in Christ's resurrection, you can read forever. There's so much evidence, but I'm just gonna give you two reasons. Number one, the testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses. You can't get around this. I'm, I'm telling you to be rational. If you have doubts, use your brain and be rational and get rid of those doubts. Of how many eyewitnesses? You tell me. Hundreds. Hundreds. <laughs> All right, and so about 23 years after the resurrection of Christ, okay, so really good Solid guys I respect, they disagree. Some say he died in 32 AD, some say 33 AD, okay. It's not a hill to die on. But about 23 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you come to around AD 55. Everybody say AD 55. 23 years, way too small a time for legend to creep in. Legends take generation after generation after generation. The story gets bigger and bigger and you know, more outlandish. No, no, 23 years after the resurrection of Jesus, a man named Hebrew, his name is Saul. Greek, his name is Paul. He writes the first Christian creed way before the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. It's in your Bible. I'll put it on the screen. Look at his words to the church. Corinth, for I delivered to you as of first importance... You see how important this is? This is the central truth of your faith. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, the Old Testament, prophecies, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I believe it's Psalm 16, 10. A thousand years BC, David writes and prophesies the resurrection of the coming Messiah. And this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth that he appeared to Cephas. This is Peter. Then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. I'll come back to that, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. If that's not enough, he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so the risen Christ appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to over 500 brothers at once. He appeared to James. He appeared to the, all the apostles. And then he appeared to the least of all the apostles, at least in his own estimation. And that's Hebrew name Saul becomes Greek name Paul. Now, this is fascinating, and this is an evidence in and of itself. How could Paul, who used to be a Pharisee, who hated Jesus who persecuted Christians. He's the guy, right now, if we're in the first century and the door gets kicked in and a bunch of temple guards come in and then a guy in a robe comes walking behind, that's Saul. He grabs you, husband, and you, wife, by your hair and goes over and grabs your kids by their hair and takes you down to the jail and throws you in the jail and locks you up. Do you understand what it meant to live for Christ in the first century? Because we have no idea in our generation. This is the guy that persecuted Christians. How does he, of all people, not only become a believer in Jesus, but become the greatest missionary the world has ever seen? How does that happen? 
Here's how it happens. He saw the risen Christ in Acts chapter nine, road to Damascus. That's an evidence in and of itself. And Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, most of whom were still alive. Everybody say still alive. Still alive in AD 55. What does that mean? Well, most of them, most of 500 is over 250. So in AD 55, 23 years after the resurrection, over 250 people are still alive because how many of you know there's not just critics and doubters in our generation, critics and doubters are part of every generation. They're part of the first century. And so if you're a critic and you're a doubter, all you gotta do is go knock on the door of over 250 people, look them in the eye and say, did you really see Jesus alive after he was dead? Yes, 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 over 250 times. Initially, it was over 500 eyewitnesses. Now, I think I've given this to you probably almost every Easter for 14 years, but I love Lee Strobel, and I love his uh, quote about the impact of 500 eyewitnesses in a court of law. Check this out. If you were to call each one of the witnesses to a court of law to be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, and you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Monday till dinner on Friday to hear them all. After listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? That's his book, Case for Christ. They made a movie. It's my top two movies, Passion of the Christ, Case for Christ. If you haven't seen The Case of Christ, watch it. It's awesome. They did a great job. But, but do you see the impact? 129 hours if you're on that jury. Over and over and over and over and over. I saw the risen Christ. I saw the risen Christ. I saw the risen Christ. What jury in the world would come to any other conclusion than this? He's alive. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a fact of history. Proven with evidence upon evidence upon evidence. But there is a second reason. If you're taking notes, not only the testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses, but the testimony of the apostles who were martyred for their faith. We're gonna see two weeks from today when we get in the book of Acts that these apostles who saw the risen Christ declared it. The central message of Acts is he is risen. They declared it and some of them were killed. We get to Acts 12, Herod's soldiers come in. Hey, James, it's time for you to go, man. They got a sword. All he had to say was, hey, we made it up. But he says, he's risen, and they kill him. Long-standing church tradition, historical accounts, Peter. Jesus said in John 21, he prophesied, Peter, they're gonna take you away later to a place you don't wanna go. And sure enough, one day they took him. They took him to a place to crucify him. And according to longstanding church tradition, it's not in the Bible, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up. Crucify me upside down. All he had to say was, we made it up. We stole the body. Don't kill me. But he went to his death, as did the apostle Paul as well. And so why? Why would these guys die such brutal deaths? They saw the risen Christ. Now, I'm almost done, but I know there's gonna be some people in your life in the future, 
and they're gonna throw you a curveball. And here's what they're gonna say. They're gonna say, okay, so you're telling me that religious zealots died for their faith. Happens all the time. Happens in all religions. What's so special about this? Look at the religious zealots, you know, who, 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 who hijacked planes on 9-11, flew them into our buildings. You know, religious zealots, they died for their faith. What's the big deal? The apostles died for their faith. Well, I agree that many religious zealots have been willing to die for what they believe to be true, but the difference between them and the apostles, this is important right here, Religious extremists may die for what they believe to be true, but nobody dies for a known lie. You see this? You see, the religious zealot may think, if I hijack this plane and fly it into a building, 72 virgins are waiting for me in paradise, and he may really believe that and die in the process of his act of terror. But what you need to know is dying for what you believe to be true is different than dying for a known lie. If the disciples stole the body and lied about it, then listen, when they face their deaths, when they're getting ready to lose their head, they're getting ready to be crucified, they're getting ready to be thrust through, I guarantee you if they lied about it and they knew they lied about it, they would have said, stop. We made it up. We wanted to get money to build condominiums on the Sea of Galilee and meet girls and live happily ever after and be millionaires. Is that what happened? No way. And so don't ever give in to this superficial argument that religious extremists die for their faith. No, 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 no. These guys were the real deal. Last two verses. Stay with me to the end. The angel says to the women, but go, tell his disciples, everybody say disciples. They deserted him. And Peter, everybody say Peter. Peter. He denied Jesus. The angel says to the women, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb and trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, at least initially, for they were afraid. And so the disciples who deserted Jesus and Peter who denied Jesus, why would the Lord ever want to see these guys again? And yet he says, hey, angel, Tell him I'm gonna be in Galilee and I wanna see him. Why? Why did he wanna see these guys? Here's why. In spite of their failure, he loved them. He wanted to forgive them and he wanted to mold them so that they can actually become what God made them to become in the book of Acts. You're here today and you failed the Lord, I mean miserably, and you think he's up there doing this with furrowed brow and getting ready to take you and throw you into hell, you don't have a biblical view of my Jesus. No, Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. He wants, you to, for, he wants to forgive you and he wants to mold you to become everything God wants you to become for his glory. But you gotta turn to him 
in repentance and in faith. There's no other way. And so if you're glad that Jesus Christ is alive, put your hands together and give him glory. God bless you guys.